I really wanted to do a Q&A at the end of this series. I like to do it at the end of the series, but I'm not sure we'll have time. But maybe at the end of next week, uh, if we can power through what we've got to deal with as it relates to translations, we'll move quickly through those lists. Um, maybe we can spend some time answering some final questions. That I would quote for you, I was going through my file, very thick file, on uh, translations and the importance of the Bible. And they came across this old pamphlet from Francis Schaeffer. Remember Francis Schaeffer, now deceased, Christian, Christian apologist, uh, defender of the Christian faith, philosopher, neat dresser, wore the knickers. Did you ever see Francis Schaeffer? Anyway, yeah, he's an all-around cool guy, now gone. But he wrote this in 1975, so what's that, 30, uh, 34 years ago? Is that right? Something like that? It's my conviction, he starts this pamphlet, all about the Scripture. He says that the crucial area of discussion for evangelicalism in the next several years will be the Scripture. At stake is whether evangelicalism will remain evangelical. The issue is whether the Bible is God's verbalized communication to men, giving propositional true truth. You ever heard us talk about Francis Schaeffer's way of thinking? We're talking about things that really correspond with reality. True truth, he liked to call it. He says the issue is whether the Bible is God's verbalized communication to men, giving propositional true truth where it touches the cosmos and history or whether it's only in some sense revelational, where it touches matters of religion. And I'd hate to say that um, we've lost that battle, but I would, I'd hate to tell you the signs that I see that shows us from 1975 to 2010 that we're fast approaching. We have really moved a long way from that statement that the Scripture is God's verbalized uh, communication, where it presents to us true truth whenever it intersects with whatever it speaks on, the cosmos or history, uh, or whether it's just in some general way, some revelatory uh, kind of communication that just applies to some area of, of morality or ethics. Uh, Lucas Pace sent me an article this week about uh, syncret, uh, the syncretizing of Christianity and uh, Eastern religion and this, this author went into, uh, maybe you read this uh, article, came out, I think, in uh, USA Today, about the, uh, the way that Christians love to, to pick and choose what they believe. And it spoke about the lack of loyalty to one's local church, which was no surprise to me as a pastor, but how we not only are not, lo we're not, only not loyal to one church and organization, we're no longer loyal to a particular creed or some way of understanding God's truth. And uh, the, the, just, it, the battle has gone on now, and, and Schaefer was right for many years, and we are in a, uh, a bit of a tailspin. And it's my hope that there'll be a, a reformation of sorts in the modern day where we can raise up a lot of uh, young, serious students of God's Word to go out and lead uh, churches, multiply congregations that are serious about the teaching of God's Word as propositional truth, that it is true truth as Francis Schaeffer said. And to do that, we've got to have some understanding of this book and how it came to be. So I'm glad that you are not at Costco and that you are here tonight studying, again, um, the whole chain of events from God's mind to the book that's in your lap so we can have 
some confidence that we are indeed holding God's, let's see how he said it again, verbalized communication to men, giving them propositional true truth. Love that line. So before we get started on the second to last installment of our lecture series this fall, let us pray and then we'll continue with translation. Pray with me, please. God, I don't want to be chicken little. I don't want to say the sky's falling. I hate to be the doom and gloom kind of person. I don't want to be that. But God, when there is a slide in what I'm seeing taught at the local seminaries, when I see that organizations and periodicals and publishing houses that used to produce real good works and materials and commentaries and and philosophical works about theology that towed the line on understanding your word verbalized to men in propositional statements that really corresponded with reality. And now, today, it's all so much fluff. God, I think I've got to be able to at least call the inner circle here in our community, our Christian community, in our church, to just say we've got to be aware of this. We've got to be ready to stand firm on our understanding of what the Bible says it is, what it proves itself to be. It authenticates itself through propositional statements that not only correspond with reality that is present, but reality that is future. Thank you for the, uh, the imprimatur, if you will, of uh, predictive prophecy, that when the uh, fall of the, of the Babylonian Empire is predicted and the rise of the uh, Medo-Persians and the name of the emperor, the city in which Jesus would be born, they're named with specificity years before it happens, that we can know that this is... Uh, this is your communication to man for us to stand up and to accept it and to embrace it as the authority for our lives, for our church, for our decision-making, even for our government, that it needs to govern what we do, how we think, what justice means, what right and wrong actually is. So God, I pray that you would help us, if for nothing else, to be a strong counterculture so that when you do return, you will find faith on the earth even that definite article there for those that have studied that with me uh, and somewhere that is identified that that's not just faith in general, that's the biblical faith. Uh, we want you to find that faith alive and well here at Compass Bible Church. We want to see you be pleased to embrace your church that's still holding firm to the truth, not only of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, but everything that relates to how you want us to live the Christian life. So God, help us just to be bold, not to be swayed by the ideology of the day. I thank you for the heroes, and I trust we'll get to them tonight, that were really, for us, a template of boldness and courage. They had the ability to stand in the face of even death and to say, this is what the Bible says, this is what is true. You can mock me, you can malign me, you can burn me at the stake, but we're going to hold to what the Scripture says. We are bound by conscience and by the letter of the Word of God. So God, let us be bold, whether it's at work, in our neighborhood, or just in our own conscience right now before you, to not be swayed or intimidated or in some way bullied by our culture to give way to the truth of your word. Thanks so much for Francis Schaeffer, who's gone on to meet you face to face, and for others like him in the middle of this last century and three quarters of the way through it that warned us that this was going to be the case. And certainly they saw it, it was coming a second wave of a kind of neo-orthodoxy, a liberalism that has really crashed on the shores of our day. And God, we've got to, uh, we've got to fight it. We've got to stand strong. We have to. He 
even as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, to, uh, to do everything we can to stand firm. And then to stand firm, knowing the, uh, the schemes of the devil that he wants to undo the church. He wants to undo our lives and our families. So give us courage and give us boldness. And God, I pray ultimately we would have a firm handle on the material that we've covered and that which we'll cover tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, just two more times before you will not have to recite this on Thursday nights. God's got a thought in his mind. He's going to get it in the mind of his prophet or apostle. We call that step. And then it's in the mind of the prophet. He's going to put that on a piece of paper or vellum or parchment. We call that inspiration. Now we've got this document here, but it sits among other documents. We've got to say, is this really a part of God's inspired library? We call that then we say, yes, this is indeed a part of God's inspired, li- inspired library. It's got to get all the way to today. We call that transmission. Now we've got it all on the pieces of uh, the parchment scattered across the tables of universities and museums. Now we've got to figure out, as we reassemble what the text actually said initially, we call that, which I wish we had, would have had more time to cover. But then we, uh, this last step, we've got to get into a language that we can make sense of. We call that Translation. All right, and we are on translation, page 62. And I think, although I'm not sure, and I don't know why it is I can't remember this, whether we covered this or not, we had talked a little bit about New Testament translation that you would like to base your translation not just on one text family. It would be great for you to have a translation that bases the text on all available manuscripts, no matter what text family they are from, Caesarean, Alexandrian, Western, or Byzantine texts. Right? Did we do that? And every modern translation, uh, save the King James and the New King James, has been doing that for the most part. Though they vary in translation theory and philosophy, most of them have been based, at least in name, on all the available texts. Now, if you're going to have a New Testament, and again, not just to uh, throw eggs at the King James Bible, but it would be good just to summarize, make sure that your Bible is considering all text families. It weighs each variant on its own merit, not blindly following one text family. And it would be great if your Bible had footnotes to explain its translation choices. And that's what any good Bible that you have, I would trust in our bookstore, is going to have that. And we need to stick to those kinds of translations. Great. Now, we've got to then make a decision as translators to represent the original languages accurately. And it would seem that that would be obvious and that all translations would want to do that. And that's true. They all want to do it. At least in theory, they want to do it. Uh, But you need to understand there is always going to be two tensions. Tension in readability. How readable will this translation be? And a tension in understanding the culture gap, what I like to call historical distance. There is a gap between today and Moses' day and Peter's day, and I've got to make a decision as I translate an ancient manuscript, how am I going to bridge that gap? Now, because these are ancient languages that we don't, most people don't traverse in every day, uh, and I got this question posed to me a couple of times recently, this last week, I thought I would give you a couple books that I don't think I put in the beginning in the bibliography. But anytime you're reading a particular translation, no matter what the translation is, of course, underlying that translation is either a Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek word that it's trying to translate, a word or a phrase. 
And so I'm going to give you two really simple tools, and then I'm going to give you two intermediate tools. And if you want to grab these, these are good Christmas presents as well if you don't have them. And if you do have them, be good to dust them off and maybe use them every now and then to make sure that we are not losing a meaning of the word that's trying to be translated in a particular passage. The first one, uh, which is an oldie but a goodie, it's a classic, Vines... Uh, and it's been all updated now, complete expository dictionary of Old and New Testament words. Old Testament section, really sparse, not that great. New Testament section in this book, uh, good, real good. That's how it started. And uh, though it may be hard to find the word, uh, you can use the index in the back, and it's a great way to see how a word is used and translated in any given passage. Another one that's a bit older, although it's been updated with a new cover, the one I have is from back in 1950, but um, I don't know if they've revised it or not, but Zondervan's Dictionary of the Bible and Theology theology Words. Yeah, they still got the old 1950s um, name. That is a decent dictionary as well. For instance, you'll hit a passage in 1 John about uh, anointing. You have, all have the anointing. Everybody takes that word anointing and goes a million different directions. Translations may translate in a variety of different ways, but when you find that word, that English word, and you want to say, well, what, that, what is that word all about? What is that really all about? And what in the world did John mean when he wrote that? Uh, you need a good dictionary that's going to try and define the word and its usage in either its Old Testament context or New Testament context. These are simple tools. They're big fat books, but they're simple, easy to use. Anyone, your junior higher, can have these on his shelf or her shelf and use these successfully, okay? Here's some intermediate tools that might be um, a bit more challenging, but much better and much deeper. For the Old Testament, the theological word book of the Old Testament, that's a great, great resource. I still use it all the time. Uh, and it in, in a very concise way, it does in one paragraph what other books, much more verbose books, do in pages. And it is two volumes, although now they got a new cover. I don't know if they put it into one volume, but most of the volumes, at least for years, have been issued in two volumes. Uh, you can look all the words up in an index, any passage you're in in the Old Testament, and if there's a word that just doesn't make sense, or you're not sure if maybe in English 2,000 years later or 4,000 years later we've made something else out of that word, this is a great resource and definitely uh, worth the money. Now, all of these books, by the way, if you have Bible software, uh, you can grab these. I think they're all available. Uh, maybe not Zondervan's Dictionary, but Vines is, and the word book certainly is in Libronics or whatever Bible works or whatever you use. I prefer Libronics if you noticed our bookstores pushing that, although we have several, or two or three at least. Uh, and this one for the New Testament, it'll be one for the New Testament. If you just had these two books, Theological Word Book in two volumes, and this one, this is another fat one, and it's issued under the title, the NIV Theological Dictionary of, New, of the New Testament Words, that's a great, compact uh, book. It may still be a thousand pages, but it's a compact book of a series of books that was probably 5,000 pages. It's well done, it's all remodernized, and all of it, whether it's the word baptism, or the word, you know, persecution, or the word, whatever the word, propitiation, or redemption, or you know, slavery, whatever it might be, go to these books, and it will help try and bridge the historical uh, distance and the language distance. So those are some good tools, uh, and I would recommend all four of those.
because I'm asked that question often. So that's a little parenthetical section. Now, choices for translators, they have to ask the question, how much historical distance do I bridge? How much historical distance do I bridge? And we do this in two categories. We do this linguistically, okay? And I'm not even to the one, two, three yet. This is just thinking on the side here under the picture of your books, your stacked books. I've got to think in two categories. First one is linguistically, okay? Now, I've got words that are phrases and idioms in, in Greek or, or Hebrew that can be brought across either with a very short gap between that day and our, and, and our day, or we can go a long way to bridge the distance. And we can have something very modern. Examples. Let me give you some examples. This is Mark 6.51. Okay? Uh, here's a literal reading of, of the Greek text, as best as I can put it together for you in English. And very out of excess in themselves, they were astonished. Now that's the way the idiom is trying to pile up words to say, wow, they were out of their minds, amazed. This is when Jesus is walking on the water, which I think you'd be amazed as well. So they're very out of excess in themselves, very astonished. Okay? Now the ESV uses these words to translate that idiom. They were utterly astounded. Now you're taking a very wordy Greek idiom and you're crunching it into that little phrase. But it works. Astounded is a pretty big word. Seems bigger than amazed in our vocabulary. Okay? NIV says they were completely amazed. And then Phillips, they were scared out of their wits. What I'm trying to do here is to show you that all of those are trying to do the same thing. One is staying closer to a kind of idiom, although I couldn't find one that made it very wordy, but more, you know, archaic language uh, all the way to bridging it to today. Now, if you want to go um, into a place where the words no longer are reflected, but the idea uh, is trying to be communicated. You go to places like Peterson's message, which says they were stunned, shaking their heads. Okay. Now, a lot of people would argue that's not even really a good expression of the extremity of that Greek idiom. But he's moved far from the language of that sentence and that phrase and has tried to communicate this in a way that we might, hey, yeah, people do that. They're stunned. They shake their heads. Um, actually, I think Phillips does a better job than Peterson in that text, if you're going to bridge the um, linguistic distance that far. How about this one, James chapter 4, verse 7. Is that, you can read that, can't you? It's not too small. The best I can word it for you, withstanding the slanderer, uh, but he will escape from you. Now here's a word that is used in Greek to escape. And slanderer, of course, is the word used for the devil. And to withstand, that's the literal word that they use as best I can woodenly translate it for you. The uh, New Century Version says, stand against the devil, which really, for the word tithemi, that's, that's a good translation. I mean, that's a literal translation. To stand against him, devil is the word slanderer, and the devil will, will run from you. There's the picture of motion because escape gives the picture of, emo of, of motion, leaving, Okay. Literal, it doesn't read well, real well, though. Stand against the devil, and he will run from you. ESV says, resist the devil, which doesn't have that imagery anymore of really standing 
which the word does in Greek, but it gives us more of the picture of what we're talking about. And he will flee from you. And then uh, the message, which is way out in left field, yell aloud no to the devil and watch him scamper. And I'm not trying to be funny, although I suppose you can see that when you bridge the distance that far, you're now adding concepts there that are absolutely foreign to the word to stand against, antitithemy, which is to stand against something, which the New Century Version, I thought, did a great job capturing what that word means. Uh, But to yell aloud no to the devil, I guess that's Eugene Peterson's way of saying that's what you're doing when you're standing against the devil. But you've missed the wording, but you're communicating something, okay? I wouldn't recommend you yell no to the devil, but just in light of James, uh, I mean Jude. Um. Galatians 3, Greek text, oh, unmindful, that's literally the word, Galatians, who bewitched you. Now, those are strange words, really, literally, that's what they are. To bewitch you is a strange concept, but that was what the Greek word meant in the ancient world. And unmindful Galatians, that's really what it is. It's a negation of your your, your thinking, okay? Now, ESV says, oh, foolish Galatians, which I guess that's what being unmindful is. You're not real smart. You're foolish. It just takes the word bewitched and brings it across, which is bold because that's kind of a word and a concept that's hard for us to put into some modern context, okay? Now, the new... Contemporary English version says, you stupid Galatians, okay? And then it changes the order of the text around and then finishes the rest of that initial phrase and says, who has put an evil spell on you? Well, I mean, that's the concept of being bewitched, right? Which is a hard concept in an ancient culture. You got to somehow try and understand. It's not very germane to our world. He takes the word, you know, unthinking or unmindful and calls it stupid because that's kind of the word we might use. I mean, your mom probably didn't let you say it, but you say it now. Uh, And then Phillips, who's always fun for a a translation every now and then, says, you, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, who has been casting a spell over you? See, that's always a hard one, bewitched, because, you know, there's no real contemporary connection. I didn't look at the message, but who knows what that says. Um, But uh, you can see where we go from unmindful to foolish to stupid to idiots. Which we still don't try not to say. Uh, Okay, so linguistically, that's the first thing. You're taking words and you're trying to give them some sense. And you're saying, how far do I go to make them connect with the modern receptor language? Which in our case is English. There's also a cultural divide. And there are phrases and idioms that are steeped in a culture that you have to somehow bridge or leave as is and let them be a bit mysterious. Examples. This is a classic one. Um, Wherefore, having bound up the hips of the mind. That's an odd statement. But that's what the text reads. Wherefore, having bound up the hips of the mind. Okay? To bind up the hips was what they did with their robes uh, to take their robes when they were going to run and put it in their belt and If you grew up in church with a preacher preaching on that, if you had an old translation, surely they gave you that picture and you learned to, you know, to to take your robe and put it up in your belt. It's an image of getting ready for action, okay? The uh, American Standard Version just takes that over and says, okay, well, that's like girding up the loins of your mind, 
because that's kind of the, the, the picture of it. To gird up the loins was how we might have said it in a Ben-Hur script or something. So having bound up the hips, girding up the loins of your mind. Okay? The ESV decides to dump this phrase, although they put it in a footnote, uh, which I thought was interesting. I, this is one of the first passages I went to when I got my first ESV to see what they were going to do with this, because uh, this really tells how far we want to bring the historical our cultural distance. But ESV simply said, preparing your minds for action. And you can see they went pretty far there to take that whole imagery out of the text because to most people it is so foreign. I mean, you have to have somebody explain that, that they decided to footnote it and put in the text, uh, therefore preparing your minds for action. Uh, The uh, contemporary English version just says, be alert and think straight, which loses the concept of what preparing, at least the ESV gives you the picture of preparing because that's what girding up the hips of your, you know, of your, your robe was all about. You were getting ready for something. So they just pass that and say, it's about your mind. That's where the phrase ends. So be alert and, and, and think straight, which loses the concept a bit more. All of them lose the concept a little bit. Uh, another cultural example uh, that people struggle with. Uh, Greek text, 1 Peter 5, 14, greet one another in a kiss of love. That's literally what the text says, um, which some people, like the ESV, says, well, we're just going to put it down there. Greet one another with a kiss of love. I mean, that's a real literal uh, translation there. Take the preposition in and turn it into how it's used in grammar. And you, you do that, greet one another with a kiss of love. Um, that's hard because in our culture, that's not how we greet one another. Maybe if you have, you know, an Italian version or something, you might put that in there. But that's not how we greet. So they say, well, how are we go- what are we going to do with this? So the uh, contemporary English version says, give one another a warm greeting, which they see, well, this is a faithful translation. It gets the concept, but we're not going to tie the ancient pattern of kissing each other into the text to communicate that concept. Okay? Now, some, like J.B. Phillips, goes even further and says, well, that's not how we do it. Contemporary English version says, we'll just give you the sense that you should do it. Now, Phillips is going to say, well, why don't I inject how we do it in our culture? So he translates this verse, give each other a handshake all around as a sign of love. Okay? Because he's saying, well, I'll bridge the historical and cultural distance all the way to where we would do it. Can you see how you've got to make these choices? Okay? Exodus 20, have a little fun with this, I guess. 13 and 15 says, you shall not murder and you shall not steal. In the 80s, it became very popular uh, for there to be a lot of um, uh, African-American translations like the African Heritage Bible, which translates this passage, don't waste nobody and you shouldn't be taking nothing from your homeboys. This is in print. You can get one. I had one given to me once that I don't think it ever ended up in my library. But I had to, <laughs> I had to show you Genesis 6-3 in another one of these Bibles called the Black uh, Bible Chronicles. That's the title of this translation. The NIV reads there in Genesis 6-3, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is... Um, for he is mortal, sorry, typo there, his days will be 120 years. 
which by the way is a very difficult Hebrew phrase. We'll contend together. I think the ESV even says, I will not abide forever in man. But anyway, that's the very difficult phrase we've got to contend with. Uh, the, the Black Bible Chronicles, this, this is great. I'm fed up, Noah, with what's happening around here. A typo. Uh, these folks ain't what's happening anymore. So I'm going to do what I got to do and end things once and for all. Man, I'm going to blow the brothers clear out of the water. Uh. Which, by the way, what I loved about this is the uh, very liberal professor at the theological, um, I don't know what they call it, the Institute, Theological Institute in Atlanta, it's uh, where a lot of, uh, of black uh, pastors go to be trained. He's a liberal. I mean, he's not, he's not a conservative. He wrote a response to the, the Black Chronicles Bible, a review, and, and I loved, or at least he was quoted by a guy writing a, a review, um, hardly a conservative. He said, I just want a Jesus portrayed as a Palestinian in the first century of the Christian era. And I thought, okay, we don't agree with a lot of things, but I agree with that because this gets ridiculous at some point when you're trying to bridge the cultural divide. Clearly, you can make a case. Well, if I'm, you know, trying to minister to, uh, you know, inner city folks that speak this way in some, you know, place like I used to teach to gang members in a ministry in downtown Chicago, I mean, should we produce a Bible that, that, that concedes their cultural verbiage? And some people are very adamant that, yes, we should. That's very good. Uh, but I think at some point you've got to say, you know, we're, gonna, we're, we're not going to get ridiculous in leaving behind the meaning of a particular verse. I mean, we're not even close to what that verse says, right? Contend with man, he's mortal, days will be hundred. I mean, now we're blowing people out of the water. I mean, that's just not what the text says. But that's, you know, obviously justified in the mind of the translator because he says that's what happens. They kind of get blown into the water, actually, not out of the water, but. All right, so they got three choices here, obviously, and let me just put these in categories and give them some words that might help. I can keep the translation, as I printed there for you on your worksheet, tight to then. And I think a lot of you in the room is going to go, well, that's what I want to do. Matter of fact, I want a word-for-word translation, okay? Word-for-word. Well, you just need to know word-for-word translation is impossible. A word-for-word translation of the Bible would be really meaningless, um, we, we really can't have a word-for-word translation because it's really not translation work. It, it's, not, it's, it's nonsensical in probably 80% of the Bible. Daniel Wallace, who teaches Greek and does a lot in uh, textual criticism and translation work on a lot of translation committees, uh, puts it very strongly. He says, many think that a faithful translation of the Bible means a word-for-word translation. If the original has a noun, well, they expect a noun in the translation. If the original has 16 words in the sentence, well, then they don't want to see 17 words in the sentence. Such a view, he says, involves incredible ignorance. And all you got to do is take a, a language class in high school and you realize you really can't do anything word for word because languages are so different in how they work um, and how they formulate thoughts. There's an old proverb that says, all translators are traitors. Have you ever heard that one? All translators are traitors. Um, an old Italian proverb says, all translation is a polite lie. Because you really can't give a word-for-word -word translation. 
That's why, by the way, in another time, when people understood the value of knowing Scripture in the languages in which God gave it, used to take their kids not to Little League and soccer and piano lessons. They used to take them to learn the languages of the Bible and early theology. They had to learn Hebrew, they had to learn Greek, and they had to learn Latin. Those languages were important so that they could study the Word of God in the languages in which they were given, and the early commentators on the Word uh, and some Catholics, obviously, to, to study Jerome's translation of the Bible. But that, those days are gone, unfortunately. Even those that do study classical languages, they do it as a badge of honor. I mean, that's what it seems like. Oh, a kid's studying Latin. And I, well, you know, what for? You know, is he reading Chrysostom? You know, probably not. But it makes some parents feel good. I'm just, I mean, I'm all for learning languages. Don't get me wrong. But I'd much rather have our children, if we're going to learn languages, learn them so that they can really relate to the scriptures in their original languages. Like one Jewish poet once said, he who reads the Bible in a translation is like a man who kisses his bride through a veil. It's probably not your preferred method, uh, if I'm speaking of your wife, that is. That's why, by the way, speaking of how shamed we should be about our culture and, the, and our view of the Bible, why, if you've ever talked to a Muslim... Um, and I've tried to do a fair amount of work with Muslims, hosting some Muslim students. God's put a Muslim right next door to me, um, trying to share the gospel with Muslims when I get a chance to, um, hosting them as international students. They will tell you that, they'll, you know, they don't even ask you if you've read the Koran. Because to them, unless you know Arabic, you never have read the Koran. They won't call a translation a Koran. Because the Koran to them is only the Koran if it's read in Arabic. So guess what they learn no matter what culture they're from? They all learn Arabic. And I, bet, I guess that's a little bit of an insult. As Walter Martin used to say, we've quoted him twice in this lecture series now, you know, they're willing to do more for a lie than we're willing to do for the truth. I mean, find a guy in Garden Grove that converts to Islam, guess what he's going to do right away? start studying Arabic. Why? Because they say it's like kissing your bride through a veil. You can't read it in English. You need to read it in Arabic. Um, so I'm all for the resurgence of us trying to learn the languages of the scripture. Not enough to be dangerous. We need to always understand that there's a lot of humility involved in language work. But if your kids are trying to uh, decide how to use their nimble minds, it'd be great for you to get them at least being exposed to Hebrew and Greek, I would highly recommend that. Can't go wrong with that. Did that, all, did that section feel bad? That was kind of humbling, wasn't it? No? Chirp, 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 chirp. <laughs> Choices for translators to make. They've got to decide how much historical distance to bridge. Preferably, we would all be in the original languages every day. But because we're not, we've got to deal with translations. Uh, so... We need to try to keep it as tight to them. At least some people would say that's the only way to go. Another word for that, and you should write this down if you're not even a note taker. Put this next to tight to them because this is the way it's discussed in the intros of your Bible translations. The phrase for that is formal equivalence. Translations fall into three categories generally. Formal equivalence is the first one. Here's the way to remember it, guys. Formal is form for form as much as possible. In other words, if the word order goes like this, if it's at all possible, keep the form of that sentence and try and translate it that way. 
And you're going to see that's going to always keep the historical distance far from you and close to then. Formal equivalence. And I just said this statement, but I decided to write it down for you. It keeps historical distance, from us that is, whenever possible. Now, you're going to say, well, you just showed us an example and that's not true. And that's true. There's lots of examples that it doesn't hold true. The ESV is saying we're a formal equivalence. Well, then why in First Peter didn't you say, gird up the loins of your minds for action? Well, because they said, whenever possible, we didn't think that was possible there because everyone's going to go, what are you talking about? And unless you're over 50 and have heard that in your sermons in your old church, if you're new to the Bible, you're not going to get that. So they say it's not possible in that passage. Now, what's the problem with formal equivalents? And they're not easy to read. If you take any Bible translation and move from, well, as you see on your paper, bridging it halfway or bridging it all the way to today or bridging it not at all, I mean, as little as possible, you're going to find that all of those formal equivalents are a lot harder to read And some websites will take translations and say, well, what grade level English is this? You've seen that? They always go higher when you get toward the formal equivalent side. Because by necessity, if you're going to be trying to be tied to the forms of the ancient language, that English is going to be more stilted, more wooden, more difficult. Which, by the way, I've had many people say, well, if you're going to change translations, Mike, why don't you go to the New American Standard The New American Standard, there's lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is, especially in the Old Testament, it is so formal in its equivalence that it is so difficult to read that part of what we have to do with the Bible is read it not only to ourselves, but read it aloud, and it just was just beyond the pale, not to mention a lot of copyright issues with the holders of the NAS and some other things that are a problem with availability, but... um, The ESV, for instance, is. Well, I'm going to give you a list of a few that we can put under this. Tight to them, your grammar is going to suffer as well. Now, ESV tries to stay, you know, as, as faithful to grammatical rules of English as it can possibly be. And even the NAS will say that, but it will get a lot of red marks from an English teacher if you read it because the grammar suffers. But Greek grammar, you can have a 52-word Greek sentence with all kinds of things going on. I mean, Paul's epistles are amazing when you start unraveling these sentences. Um, and I didn't even look up the statistical number of how many, I mean, there's just some super long sentences that, are, that for us would be super run-on sentences, but that's just the way they wrote. And if you try to be a form-for-form translation, then that's going to be a terrible English sentence. Uh, Also, words and concepts will need explanation. I mean, when the NAS put down, gird up the loins of your mind, which it did, I don't know if that was the one I gave you as an example of one that did. Maybe it was the American Standard Version. You've got to stop every time when you're discussing reading that word in church and you've got to explain it you have to explain it because in our day you're not going to get it so the more you stay tight to them the more you're going to have to explain what these phrases mean what are the advantages well there's a couple of advantages number one history is depicted in the words of the professor uh, of uh, theology in atlanta he wants 
Christ depicted, not as an inner city, uh, you know, uh, African-American in Atlanta that, that, you know, doesn't treat English grammar well. He wants him treated as who he was. You're a first century Palestinian. That's how I want it depicted, to use that word, by the way, as his word, obviously. He's a first century Jew, because we make distinctions there. History is depicted, and I like that. I'm reading a historical book. I want history to be depicted. And you can see, by the way, if you've ever gone, how many gone through the partners program? Been through the partners program? In the chapter where I try to discuss how to study the Bible on your own, you have to move from then to always to now. Problem with Bible study today is everybody's into the Bible and wants immediate now. Give me the now. When you get the now right out of the gate, you're going to want a Bible that's going to bridge the historical distance completely for me. I want it all the way to now because that's how I'm reading the Bible. But if my commitment is, if I'm going to rightly understand the Bible, I've got to start with then, then you're going to see where churches like ours who understand that kind of hermeneutic, the way to understand and interpret the Bible, we're going to want more of a formal equivalent Bible. See? So we're going to want to move in that direction as much as possible because we're reading a historical document and we want to understand its history. The problem uh, is, and to me I call this an advantage, but the work involved is you've then got to interpret you're not going to let the translator interpret. And there was an article I started reading, didn't read it all. Um, I think Dr. Thomas wrote this article, but it, he, he calls it, it's not, the, uh, it's not the art of translation for some, it's really the art of interpretation. Uh, and we're not questioning their linguistic skills, we're, we're, we're checking their hermeneutical skills. And I think that's true. Uh, what we want to do is take as much interpretation out of a given text as possible. You can see my bias. Of course, I, I want that because I understand the need to start with then and not rush to now. Examples, New American Standard, probably the, one of the most woodenly literal translations that's still available and in print. Um, probably, I would say, one of the most, really historically, one of the most literal translations that was ever done and, and saw the light of day. The ESV and the RSV have come really close. The RSV is more tight to then. I mean, the ESV is more tight to then than the RSV. And you know what these all are. New American Standard Bible, English Standard Version, Revised Standard Version. And then even the King James and the New King James, those are, are tight to then. Most people would put them left well, it depends on how you do the spectrum. They're not quite as tight to then as the ESV or the NASB, but they are in the tight to then category. And that's good. All of those, in terms of translation theory, I'm going to say, I like that, because that is my bias, that we want to start with a text that keeps us in history and doesn't try and interpret for us. Okay, but there's a lot to be said for meeting halfway in the middle. Meeting halfway in the middle is another way to do it. Number two on your outline, meet halfway between. This is called the dynamic equivalence. Not a formal equivalence, a dynamic equivalence. Well, translation work is all equivalence. We want an equivalent verse here from Greek or Hebrew to English. But is it formal, formal equivalence, form for form? Or is it dynamic? It produces the same dynamic effect as that original verse. What effect did that give a first century person? Well, then change it to give the effect, see, for a 21st century person. That's going to move away from a literal translation 
and it's going to move us into translating concepts, not forms. Some people call this, instead of a word-for-word, word, which is impossible, but they see formal equivalence as a word-for-word word translation, and they see dynamic equivalence as a form, I'm sorry, a thought-for-thought thought translation. You've heard that phrase? Do we translate thought-for-thought? Thought? Do we translate word-for-word? Word? Now, there's a lot of debate going on out there about this, and I'm totally respectful of the dynamic equivalent group. I've used the dynamic equivalent from the pulpit for the last uh, you know, 12 years or so. But I'm, you know, I'm recognizing, obviously, the advantage. Not I am recognizing. I have recognized and see now as the NIV, as it stands going away, the need to move to a more formal equivalence. And, 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 and I say that because, well, aren't we into verbal inspiration, all that? Yeah, we're into verbal inspiration. But if the verbiage of a passage does not communicate the thought of the verbiage of a Greek or Hebrew word, then it's not communicating the meaning of that word. Therefore, stop with being woodenly literal and give me the meaning because that's what words do. They're containers for meaning, right? So there's an argument here and it's, it's not, we're not, I'm not here to toss it completely away. There's a great need for this, as you'll see. We want to have more than one translation if we're, if we're, uh, Needing English translations, which we all do, we'll want more than one anyway. Oh, I did put this down here after all. It's more of a thought for thought. You've already written that down, some of you. Except for those of you that only write down what's on the screen. Now, another way to put it is this. It's always attempting to fill in meaning. I want to fill it in. I want to fill it in. What would it have done in the mind of the original reader? I want to fill that in for today's reader. And you can see where that might drive you to the place of the message or the J.B. Phillips but at some point, you're going to say, now we're not even a thought for thought. You're adding things that weren't there. You're making me think thoughts that weren't in the original passage. So I, I can't really be a dynamic equivalent if I get too far from every single thought is represented with words that represent the same thought. I'll give you an example. Here's a tough passage for folks, kind of like girding up the loins of your mind. Genesis 37:29. And this is all throughout the Bible. I just picked this one. Reuben tore his clothes in that passage. Reuben tore his clothes. That's what the text reads in Hebrew. He tore his clothes. But you, you're a Sunday school graduate, right? You know what that means. You know what that means. Why do people tear their clothes in the ancient Near East? Because they're, they're in grief, right? Well, it doesn't explain that for us. You've got to know something of ancient Near Eastern culture and how they responded to grief by tearing their clothes to know that. So, New Century, or I'm sorry, the uh, contemporary English version says Reuben tore his clothes and adds these two words, in sorrow. Now, the words in sorrow are not there in Hebrew. But since they're saying we're trying to be a thought-for-thought translation... And we want to meet halfway in between. We're not going to leave the verbiage of tearing the clothes. And we're not going to replace it. Or we're not going to extend it beyond that. But we do need to explain it so the reader can get it. So they add those two words. Again, I'm in the camp that says, well, let me explain that. Or let me discover that. Because I want to read an ancient document. And I've got to get up to speed with why. I want to ask the question, why does someone tear their clothes? Because we don't tear our clothes today when we're upset. You can see the, the struggle here. Great advantages. 
of being readable. The best translations in terms of readability, which is one of the reasons the NIV did so tremendously well for so long, was that it really reads well. I mean, there's not many places where it doesn't read smoothly and it doesn't really carry, you know, the, the concepts well and the phrases and the predicates and the antecedents. They all make sense. They can connect up. Even where the Greek is confusing, they get it to make a very smooth transition and let things be very clear. Now, that's great. The disadvantage is there's always more interpretation, which, again, the dynamic equivalent folks say, well, that's a necessary evil. We've got to do that. The problem is where most of the debate ends up raging is that now people are going to throw a flag on the play and say, well, you're losing figures of speech. You're losing, in many cases, issues and distinction of gender. You're losing things of style or historical practice, especially if you choose to lose the tearing the clothes altogether, which translators don't dare do if they're going to be a dynamic equivalent because it's too frequent and ubiquitous, so they keep it. But if you want to change phrases that say were very... Say there was only one reference to tearing the clothes in the Bible, and you had to know the ancient Near Eastern Semitic practice of tearing your clothes. A lot of translators would say, well, I'm a formal equivalence. I'm going to say he, he tore his clothes in sorrow because I want to explain it. Or he might even cover it up completely and said he showed grief or something uh, or expressed his grief. Well, if you're a dynamic equivalent, the critics will say you lose those things. For instance, when you want to always try to, and this is the big gender controversy, make the genders as neutral as possible, when you get to passages that have richness in them because of the theological connection between ancient Near Eastern uh, giving of, of inheritance from a father to a firstborn son, and you make the son a passage that reads sons and daughters, even though the word daughters isn't there, and we miss the concept of inheritance to sons... See, then they'll say, well, flag on the play, you're missing the concept there. Now you are. Now most, most people don't get it, but that's what the formal equivalence guys will say against the dynamic equivalent guys. Theological terms are usually lost. That was one of the big critiques against the NIV. Words like propitiation aren't there anymore. They take that word uh, and they take that one Greek word and they turn it into a toning sacrifice well, the word sacrifice isn't there and the word atoning isn't there. But it's that very specialized word, propitiation, to satisfy the justice of God. Well, that's what an atoning sacrifice does. So they take those words and put them there. Or the word flesh is translated sinful nature. Well, that kind of gives us a sense of what the translators think it means. It's a very interpretive decision. It's the word flesh. The formal equivalence guys say, well, let them deal with flesh. We're not sure what it means, or maybe we've got an opinion, but let the reader figure that out. That's what we prefer. That's what I prefer. Here's some halfway in the middle translations that are popular today. NIV, obviously. You're familiar with that. The New Living Translation, which sounds like a paraphrase, but it's really not. It's a dynamic equivalent. The New English Translation which is the Net Bible, Holman's Christian Standard Version, which is interesting when you read their philosophy translation, what they do real hard in the beginning of their, uh, their preface is they say, well, we're really both. They try to throw out the forms or the uh, phrases formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence, and they basically are saying, we're, we're the best of both worlds. But really, it's a dynamic equivalence. There's no way around that.
in my mind, as I've read the Holman's Christian Standard Version. You familiar with those translations, some of them? All right, then you've got those that say, well, we're going to bridge it completely. Now, there are some that, you know, don't get much behind them, like the uh, Black Chronicles Bible, um, the Black Bible Chronicles. But you do have some that do get very, very popular. Uh, and if I give you this word to give you another word for it, then you'll say, oh, yeah, we know some very popular paraphrases of the Bible. A paraphrase is a translation, which is not usually a translation. It's usually moving English text into more explained English text. Usually doesn't start with a Greek or Hebrew text, though some very rarely do. The paraphrase gets super popular because, man, it really makes sense. I've always wondered what that phrase means. And there it is, spelled out. They're usually not translated from... uh, Greek and Hebrew, I already said that, but there it is. Um, They're very interpretive. They take phrases and and concepts that are hard and they make sense of them. They're very easy to read. The problem is they're sometimes wrong because there are a lot of passages you've got to make decisions on and oftentimes these guys make them and don't do it with a lot of work or a lot of thought. They just, I mean, Ken Taylor's Living Bible. You're all familiar with the Living Bible, right? I mean, you grew up in a church in my era. That was the first Bible you ever got. It was the Children's Living Bible. Uh, and that's appropriate, I suppose, in the author's mind because Ken Taylor, who worked at Moody Press in Chicago, used to ride the train in from Wheaton every day, and he would sit on the L train, and he would take his Bible on his lap, and then he would write on a yellow tablet uh, a paraphrase. And he did it for his children. He had young kids at home, and he wanted his kids to understand the Bible. So he did this. Well, it became very popular. It was initially done for his kids. Then it was published as a New Testament for children. And then adults said, well, I like this because that makes so much sense. It makes reading the Bible easy. And it became a super, super popular uh, translation. But again, Ken Taylor's on a, on, a, on a subway commuting to work. He doesn't have all of his commentaries out going, oh, yeah, there are three good problems with the way I just translated that here. The message is the very popular new kid on the block in this category. And we've already given you some examples of the message, have we not? Scared out of their wits. Was that J.B. Phillips or the message? It was the message, right? The Living Bible, of course, Ken Taylor's work. Eugene Peterson did the, the message. John Phillips, that's still around. I still hear it from time to time. It was really popular back in the day. Uh, J.B. Phillips translation. Those are the most popular ones, I think, that you will be familiar with. There are others. African Heritage Bible, things like that. Okay. Obviously, most people don't take these seriously. They're helpful, I suppose, in some settings. And they're fun to read. But they're not, they shouldn't be our primary Bible. Now, One more question here before we leave this page on page 62. What receptor language to use? Well, I speak English, so let's use English. Well, yeah, but there's different kinds of English. Now, this is a different issue altogether. I mean, in some ways, it connects to the linguistic distance, but really, it's it's the language that we're speaking 
I guess the African Heritage Bible is one example, but you've got to get to a place where you're trying to decide how do I choose a Bible based on its, its actual vocabulary. Uh, and the Bibles that we have today, they will never be timeless because our, our languages evolve. It is the basic problem with older translations, no matter what the translation is. Spent a lot of time in the last few months in Tyndale's Bible, the Douay Rhymes Bible, the uh, you know Coverdale, uh, um, you know King James Bible. All of these are old Bibles with you know four hundred year old um, English, and unfortunately, words and usage change. I talked briefly with a gal today uh, talking about the word pathetic, and uh, she's reading some Puritans and coming to the realization that that word was a good word, not a bad word. Uh, It wasn't a pathetic word. Pathetic was not a pathetic word. And I agreed with her. But, you know, in reality, good luck at trying to save that word. It's like trying to say, save gay, right? Try and save that word and tell your coworkers, how's your day? Ah, it's gay, right? It ain't, good luck. You're not going to pull that word back. It's lost. And, And the word pathetic is lost. Uh, because language evolves and language changes. Now, a lot of us like to read old material. We love to read the, the English Puritans. We, love, we read the English Puritans because it's good theology, and we get excited about words that they're pontificating on. I hate to use pontificate about Puritans, but they're, they're, they're preaching about these great words. Uh, but you've got to understand, if we're going to get real, we can't really live in the old verbiage of old English. We just can't. And that's why even a guy who is a die-hard Byzantine majority text guy, I'm going to say, ditch your King James Bible and at least for the sake of your family, you know, use a new King James. Examples. 1 Thessalonians 4.15, we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Fathano is not a word that means prevent, because prevent then did not mean what prevent means now. So thankfully, the New King James gives the proper meaning of this word, which is now the word we use, proceed. Proceed, the old English word for it was prevent. And you need to change that, because the receptor language has changed. Okay? Uh, Here's another one. I love this example. I always ask people this who are pro-King James people. I said, can you fetch a compass for me? And they say, well, I don't know. Give me some time. Uh, But it doesn't mean what you think it means, as Fezzik used to say. You know, that never works anymore. And from thence, we fetched a compass. This is Acts 28, 13, okay? Now, fetched a compass doesn't mean to go get a compass, although it's in a context of a boat. And people say, well, I don't know. Maybe that's what it means. Well, New King James at least updates the language. And from there, we circled around. That's what the words in the you know, 16th, 15th century meant to fetch a compass. Or here's another good one in the Old Testament, Psalm 4.2. How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? And I'll say, well, until I can afford my own car, I guess. I don't know. I mean, right? Kazab, the, the Hebrew word kazab, uh, they translate it in the, in the 15th century, a leasing, or the 17th century, leasing, that's what it means. Well, leasing today, I guarantee you, you're not thinking of leasing, leasing from a 16th century or 17th century English. So at least get yourself a, a new King James. How long will you love worthlessness, vanity, and seek after falsehood? 
That's what kazab means, is lying, deceitfulness, falsehood. With all that said, I guess what we're looking for is it's, and, and it's, by the way, that's another argument is, I mean, I don't want to have to defend myself here, but why are we going to the ESV and not the NAS? Because some people, oh, I used to, I love the NAS. Well, the NAS is also 1960s English. See what I'm saying? We're already 40 some years behind on that. So let's at least use the ESV, which is a 2002 translation, has the same philosophy of translation, a formal equivalence, and at least it's modern English, right? So it'll have a shelf life, um, maybe till I'm dead and gone. So that'll be good. Wow, wouldn't that be great? Use the ESV till I'm dead. I could die soon and then wouldn't take too long. I don't know. <laughs> Bottom line is this. Please use multiple translations, okay? Before we talk about all the Bibles in detail. And uh, the book you should have either... Now, this is for those of you that don't have Bible software. Bible software is obviously the preferable way to go about it all. Some of you love the tactile experience of books, as do I. Uh, so you'll maybe want a book uh, to start with like this, which we've already recommended to you. If you start with an interlinear, now right now they don't have a regular interlinear, they've got a reverse interlinear, which takes the English text of the ESV and puts the Greek words underneath it. And since we're ministers of the New Covenant, we'll stick with New Testament examples right now, but you should have a book that shows you what the language is underneath your English text. Either a software program, BibleWorks, uh, whatever your software program is, or Libronics or Logos or whatever or by, by this book, and you'll at least see that. Now, you'll want to use multiple translations. The easiest way to do that is in a book that has a lot of them on the same page. And Oxford does a good job at this, and I love their, uh, their, their offerings. This one, for instance, the precise parallel New Testament has the Greek text, which is helpful if you know it or get familiar with it, uh, which I would recommend. The, New, the King James, Rhymes, Amplified, uh, New International, uh, new, new Revised Standard, New American Standard, and, uh, and the New American Bible. All of those on the same page of every passage. So that, you got eight right there. Okay? And it's called the precise parallel New Testament because all of those are either a trying to be somewhat formal dynamic or a formal equivalent translation. All of those. Okay? Then they came out with another one, which is also good. Uh, and it's got a little overlap called the Contemporary Parallel New Testament. And it's also eight translations, and you'll see there's a bit of an overlap. But they'll have the New King James, uh, I'm sorry, King James, New American Standard, New Century Version, Contemporary English Version, the CEV, New International Version, New Living Translation, New King James Version, and the Message. To put all of those on one page, at least you'll get a smile at a, the message, and you'll get some other more dynamic equivalent translations on one page. And if, say, you're teaching a Sunday school class or something, it's certainly before you teach a passage, it'd be great for you if you don't have the language skills to at least be able to read that passage in 8, 9, 10, or 11 different translations because all of that may help you stay away from being pigeonholed in a particular English word that makes you think it's about leasing a Honda, you know, and it's not. It's about lying or deception. Obviously, you're not sticking with a... Uh, King James translation, I hope. Those are all good references to have. Crossway does the first one. Oxford Press does the second two. And they're great to have on hand. It's just fun to read sometimes. If you do your annual Bible reading, read your New Testament. Just pull one of these out and just read a different column every day. All right, let's talk a little bit about the history of the English Bible. Oh, 
This is good. That guy at the bottom left there, more important to you than you can possibly realize. Let's talk a little bit first about English. Got a big blank page here for you. A relatively new language, <laughs> all things considered, comparatively. And we're talking about, I mean, we go to school to learn Hebrew and Greek. I mean, those are old languages. I mean, they were writing those things and stuffing them in jars and putting them in caves before Christ. They had written that library, and after Christ, they were, you know, tucking them away. That's, that's a long time ago. And we're going to school to learn to, to, to read that. I and mean, we're, we're reading languages that in many ways, at least how we read them now, they haven't changed much. Hebrew hasn't changed a whole lot. Proto-Hebrew and ancient Hebrew or old Hebrew. and I mean, it's stayed pretty steady for centuries, millennia. Okay? English, not, not the case. English has been a very dynamic, fast-moving language. Okay? Old English, three categories to this. Old English is pre-1100, um, really 1066, the Norman Conquest. It's the language of the Anglo-Saxons, the Germanic inhabitants of England, right? This is all about England. Now think about this. Before that, it's all kind of mushy. The time of Christ, we had no English, okay? By the 6th century, the precursor to English that, that led up to, to 1100, I mean, there was such a small group. There were more people, as one author puts it, speaking Cherokee Indian than were speaking English, Right? by 700 A.D. I mean, this was such a tiny language, and it grew, it grew quickly. Middle English, from 1100, the Norman Conquest, to the time of uh, the printing press, basically, we had a kind of English that uh, was growing like crazy. It was moving, changing, becoming... I mean, it was multiplying. It was in the center of power and prosperity, and uh, it was going to be, obviously, the lingua franca of the world. Modern English, really modern. We call it modern English, post-1500, William Shakespeare's day. I know that doesn't sound very modern, but it, but it is. So think about that. From the 6th century, from the 6th century, we had hardly anybody speaking this language. Okay, 7th century, 8th century starts to grow, turn of the millennia. Then we have an onslaught of this language to where everyone now, I mean, in a powerful place, is speaking this language, to where by Shakespeare's day we have a 30,000-word thir vocabulary of English which, by the way, if you want to know how big that is, the average college graduate today has a vocabulary of about 15,000 words. And Shakespeare's sonnets and plays, 30,000 word, that's why it's so hard to read, right? You're thinking, is this is in English? Uh, because it's, it's so much of it is foreign. It was such a rich language by that time. Great website, by the way, wordcount.org. Does anybody know that website? Love that website, wordcount.org. Check it out tonight. It's, a, it's worth at least 15 minutes of just messing around on wordcount.org. It's got 86,000 words in English all put in there in a very neat visual slide to show you where it falls in American usage. So pick a word that you think is rare. You, here's a good game to play with your wife. 
Tell your wife, pick a word you think is rare. I'm going to play this with my wife, but I mean, this is when you're really bored. You got nothing going on. And you, and you pick a word and plug it in, and it'll show you where it is on the, on the word usage chart. It's only got 86,000 words. The Oxford, um, uh, the, the Oxford Complete exo- uh, you know, Exhaustive English Concordance has 600,000 English words. A good percentage of those are technical words. So maybe half of that, 300,000 regular vocabulary words. And in America, really, we're not using much more than 15,000. This one logs 8,000. And almost every word you can think of, they're going to have it in there. And see where it falls on the uniqueness scale. And you can find some. Just pull the slide all the way over. You can pick, a, you can pick some really unique English words and then start creating some sentences and then take it to the Christmas party uh, this Friday. And it'll be a lot of fun. I don't know why I'm talking about any of that. Old English, Middle English, Modern English. Okay? Most important thing you need to know about is probably one of the most important things that ever happened in a little island off of England, Lindsay Farn. There was a monastery, and of course, the Bible of the day was what language? What was the Bible of the day? Latin, right? The Latin Vulgate, Jerome's Bible. It had dominated since the 4th century, 5th century, okay? Lindsay Farn, there was this little uh, monastery where guys sat there with the Gospels and took a really cool, highly decorated copy of the Gospels and started to put just above every Latin word an old English word. It's our very first extant example of an English interlinear from Latin to English, the Lindisfarne Gospel. It's an 8th century interlinear, old English. Um, glosses over... English glosses over Latin. It looks like this. It's pretty, really a, a pretty text. And the guy who did it in Latin is thinking, man, you ruined my manuscript. But it, it, it's, it's really a gem because it's the first time we have the scriptures in English. Now, it's almost unintelligible, not only because it's Old English, but because it's put in the word order of Latin. And turning from Latin to English, not quite as bad as turning from Greek to English, but it's bad but at least we're getting a vocabulary. This was used for years after to start to make translations because those monks made this interlinear. Just to give you a picture of how decorated this text was, look at this. These are some of the things they did in the Lindsay Farn Gospel. Beautiful text, and it's all glossed with English, old English, words over Latin. Okay, now the guy, the, the man of the hour, Here's our hero of the night, John Wycliffe. Here he is with his scroll in his hand. 14th century, he's a doctor, a professor, a lecturer at Oxford University. He's a pastor in a little town called Letterworth, England. Now, I know you don't hear much about him. I know you've heard his name, right? Now, this would be fun to see. How many of you have never heard of John Wycliffe before? Just be bold, be brave. Never heard of John Wycliffe. Great, look at that. He should be your hero. You've heard of Martin Luther, right? Martin Luther's got nothing on this guy. Because this guy did it when no one was doing it. What was he doing? He was angry over the Roman Catholic abuse of their authority. He was angry over the sale of indulgences. You know what an indulgence is? Martin Luther's favorite uh, 
mocking line was, because uh, this is what the priest used to say, you know, when, when you throw the money into the, into the pot, when it rings, right, then a soul from purgatory springs, and that, that was the thing. If you needed to build a building, don't preach sermons about it, Pastor Mike. You just tell them you can get their granny out of hell uh, by giving money. You know, give me a thousand bucks, maybe I can get your, you know, your, your, uh, your neighbor out. You give me ten thousand dollars, I get your, you get your grandmother out. Give me a hundred thousand dollars, I'll get your, I'll get your, uh, your mother out of hell. How about that? Purgatory. So they were making money that way. And it, this guy, John Wheel, was furious about this. Why? Because he was a learned Oxford scholar, and he knew the scripture. He knew Latin. He read the Bible, and he knew that's not what the Bible says. And he knew that the Bible was really the authority of the church. He hated transubstantiation. He knew that was a lie. Turning the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ. He understood the scriptures. He knew that's not what the scripture taught. He denied papal authority. He had no real authority unless what the Pope was saying had some biblical foundation. So his answer to the heresy of the church was the reason you're sitting here, at least humanly speaking, with a Bible in your hand in English. His thing was, we can solve this problem by putting the Bible in the language of these people, which now, of course, the, the language is English, Middle English. Let's get the Bible in their hands. And if they can see this for themselves, they won't blindly follow the priests. Now, we haven't even, Martin Luther hadn't even been born yet. He would not even have thought yet. That's why John Wycliffe is called the morning star of the Reformation, because before any of the stir in the church took place, John Wycliffe had the guts and the boldness to say, I'm going I'm to fix the problem. He translated the Bible into English for the very first time, and we had some glosses, and we had some works, and people had dabbled in it. He got the Bible put into English from the Latin Vulgate. It wasn't from Greek and Hebrew, but he got it into English, him and his team, and they called them Lollards, by the way. You've heard the word Lollard, Lollards in church history? The Lollards were the followers of John Wycliffe. He would send them out with English parts of the English text. It was a term of derision, the Lollards, because Lollard meant a mumbler, someone who went around mumbling. It was really a, it was a term of con, uh, condescension by the educated elite at Oxford and Cambridge because they said, well, they don't know Latin. These normal people, they haven't learned it. All they've learned is English, the common folk. And Wycliffe said, that's fine. The common folk, if they could just see that what the Bible says is not what the priests are saying, they won't listen to you anymore. We need to get the Bible in their hands. So the Lollards went out as the, the precursor movement to the Reformation. Before the 95 Theses was ever nailed on the Wittenberg church door, the Lollards were laying the groundwork because John Wycliffe said, the church is out of line and we've got to fix this. We need the Bible. Listen to some of his quotes here. This one's great. Those heretics who pretend that the laity, that means the non-clergy, the non-pastors, non-priests, need not know God's law, but that the knowledge which the priests have imparted to them by word of mouth is sufficient. They do not deserve to be listened to. That's big. That's going to get you in trouble. <laughs> I mean, they're not going to like that. The church was really powerful in the 14th century, you realize. He went on to say, since the laity should know the faith, it should be taught in whatever language is most easily comprehended. Christ and his apostles taught the people in the language best known to them. That's genius because you know what he could have taught them in? Hebrew. He didn't. 
And it's my contention, he didn't teach them in Aramaic either. He taught them in, in Greek. It was the lingua franca of the marketplace. In all the cities of the Decapolis, they spoke Greek. Christ and the apostles, clearly they wrote the New Testament in Greek. They wanted it to be known. And Wycliffe said, back to the scriptures, back to the principles and philosophy of Christ and the apostles, get the Bible in their language. And we won't be selling indulgence anymore. We won't be following the Pope anymore. We won't be believing in transubstantiation anymore. We can fix this thing. Obviously, because of the date, it was a Middle English translation, and I could show you some. I think I'm going to give you some here in a minute. Kind of hard to read, but you can get the sense of it. It is our ancestor language. Oh, I hear I wrote it down for you. Mutterers, the mumblers, lollards. He started the movement called the lollards. Here's a passage for you. I pulled this from 2 Corinthians 9.15. I shouldn't have told you that. I should have tested you on this. Ye do thanksgivings to God of the yeft of him that may not be told. What does that say? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, right? The gift that can't be spoken, that can't be told. 2 Corinthians 9.15. And for once we had the plowboy, as he wanted to put it, reading the Bible in his own language, thanks to John Wycliffe. Huge. Oh, we're out of time. Well, anyway, that's a good name for us to resonate on. It'd be good to send you home thinking of John Wycliffe. That's not the guy in the bottom part of your page. That's another guy, equally important to us. But John Wycliffe, from our perspective, being English-speaking people, he got it all started, and we got to be grateful for him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for John Wycliffe. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his boldness. We thank you for the way that he was uh, so firm to say that if God doesn't say it, then we're not going to do it. And if God doesn't say it, no one should listen to you. Thanks so much for his, uh, his commitment to Scripture alone. I mean, long before that was even a, a statement in Europe, he was living by it. And the Lollards were out passing scripture around and reading it to people, translating it at threat of death. They were getting it done. So thanks for John Wycliffe. May he be a new hero, especially to those that have not learned about him, don't know his place, maybe heard his name, don't know what he did. God, let us be so grateful that we are in the lineage, the spiritual heritage of a guy that was willing to give his life for getting the word of God into a language that the people could understand. And thanks so much that we're here, although we want to learn the original languages, and it's good when we can, that that should not be some erudite or learned barrier to us understanding your word. Thanks that we have it in English. Thanks that we have it in contemporary English that we can understand it in. Thanks so much for, for John Wycliffe. I pray, God, uh, and I know his reward is great, but I, I pray that he would be uh, just rightly honored, uh, the honor that's due him, and uh, even in heaven now, that he might be uh, receiving his reward richly, and we certainly are indebted to him. Thanks so much for your work through men like that. May there be some like that in our generation that will stand up to the slip and the slide away from the firm understanding of the Scripture being your communicated, verbalized revelation of true truth, as Francis Schaeffer put it. So God, make us bold on that, just like John Wycliffe, in Jesus' name. Amen.